Welcome to Grid Forward Chats. We've got something of a crossover episode here today. Bryce is going to be talking with Laurent Segalon from the Redefining Energy podcast and Megawatt X. At the Grid Forward Virtual Summit, they talked about not only European markets, but also key takeaways from COP26 and the future of infrastructure, both in the U.S. and abroad. Well worth a listen. Take it away, Bryce. Welcome to the next episode of Grid Forward Chats. I'm Bryce Yonker with Grid Forward. Uh, today we have with us Laurent Segalon. Laurent is a podcaster himself, running one from London called Redefining Energy with a colleague Gerard out of Berlin. And it's my go-to to know what's going on in Europe, frankly, around the globe. But I love listening to your session, uh, your sessions. Laurent, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you. And I apologize for Gerard, who is a uh totally disorganized. So he was supposed to come, but he, he double booked you. So, uh, you know, you'll have double French accent and no Irish accent. <laughs> we get to cover a lot of great stuff today. And can you briefly share about your background? What what led you into what you're doing these days and, and the work that you're doing in the energy space? So basically, I'm, a, I'm an investment banker, a clean energy veteran. Unfortunately, Every one of you uses one of the things I co-created uh, 20 years ago, which is the concept of scope one, scope two, and scope three. I'm one of the co-creators of the concept when I work on the first JG protocol. And all the young people asked me to, to come to COP26, but I told them I went to COP7, which kind of gives you a bit of a, an idea of how, how much of a veteran I am. And uh, so over 25 years of uh, career in clean energy, uh, I've been a consultant for PwC. I've been a trader of environmental product power. Created a platform about eight years ago, brokering wind farm and solar park. And Joe has been a good friend for some time. And three years ago, we were just drinking beer and say, "Oh my God, our conversation was so extraordinary. Why don't we? Why don't we record them?" And uh, the rest is history. And that's probably, honestly, that's probably my favorite part about your guys' podcast. You, you have amazing guests, but your honest discussion before and after is what I really love. Um, I asked this question of everybody. So before we get in, you know, we're a month and a half into a global pandemic. It's been wild for, for everybody. How are you? How are you doing? How are the people around you? Uh, look, uh, <laughs> I caught I, I COVID uh, last, year, uh, last Christmas. was kind of uh, bad, but uh, okay. And then uh, since then, I've been jabbed uh, thrice. So I'm like, I'm, I'm totally jacked up. I'm good. <laughs> so you're fine. All right. Cover any highlights you'd like, but what has happened in the energy markets and on the grid in Europe that really sets the stage for what's going on today? Okay. So I'm going to start with an absolute uh, banality, which is uh, we're prisoner of geography, which means uh, in Europe, we are much more, uh, uh, we have a much denser population, which means the grid is much denser. And we've, we've been uh, fortunate to kind of have a bit of a top-down approach without much resistance from the different states. And that was decided in Brussels. So we have had really a, a grid which has been more and more and more unified since the 80s. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of interconnection. Of course, the further north or east or south you go, when you start entering in peninsulas, and that's a bit of a problem, but basically... Uh, I would say the grid that goes from uh, Romania to Ireland, it's pretty synchronized, which is something uh, we consider pretty much normal. 
Now, does it, does it mean there is uh, there still are several markets? I mean, the English market, Scandinavian markets, Spanish markets, or really the one on the periphery uh, have have their own dynamics. But uh, Central European market is really really organized around Germany. Was the biggest uh, liquidity. Can you talk a little bit about the general structure and and where grid operators in the region are are now and where they're trending towards? Well, I mean, there's been a liberalization movement in the late 90s, which really broke down the vertical monopolies. So the the transmission operators are are really independent. And then you've got kind of regional monopolies, which are are the DSOs, Uh, most of them remaining uh, legacy one. And the, 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 no, nobody really talks about them, but they're they're really important, especially considering the fact that uh, um, you used to have a few central points where electricity was generated, and of course it's going to be uh, you know hundreds of thousands of uh, solar or, or wind. So the, the 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 profile of the DSO is uh, is really uh, changing a lot, and of course uh, now they need to tackle EV charging coming in big. I think in Europe we're kind of a year ahead of the US. And again, it, it boils down to something very simple as uh, we import 80% of our oil, we import uh, two-thirds of our gas, and we import them from people uh, which are like, uh, I mean, you don't want to spend your holidays with. So <laughs> energy efficiency, uh, self-sufficiency is, uh, is a policy you don't need to, to argue a lot about. Yeah. So I think globally, everybody's very interested in the volatile and spiky gas markets. And, and as those, you know... It, relate to energy and and electricity markets as well. So can you can you talk a little bit about what's going on there, what's causing that, what are long-term implications of that? I mean, it's a bit discouraging in a certain way because we've really been uh, deploying a lot of renewables in Europe. But if I look at, uh, you know, as a former trader, I look at the markets every morning, every evening, and sometimes I've got alerts. So I'm really, uh, you know, very acute to where the the, the, the pricing points are. And uh, and I look at the weather every day now because the weather is part of the, the formation of the price of power. And uh, I look at Germany at uh, 6 p.m. Consumption was uh, 60 gigawatt, which is, and you know, a certain way people say, oh, that's great. You get 60 gigawatt of wind, 55 gigawatt of solar. When guess what? There was zero gigawatt of solar production. And of the 60 gigawatt of wind, there was one. So, I mean, you can deploy 600 million gigawatt of whatever solar when you want. If they don't produce, they don't produce. So you end up 50% of coal, um, about 30% of gas, and the rest being nuclear. And, you know, they had the great idea to to close uh, the remaining uh, nuclear plants who still have uh, 30, uh, 30 years to run. And, you know, that's politics and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, I, I really sympathize with people who really want to put renewables all over the place, but... Uh, at least in Europe, I don't know how you can live without a non-renewable part who's going who's gonna to take over. So, yeah, uh, that's, the, that's the situation. Now, of course, the one we have right now is gas. Um, and uh, uh, gas is, um, I mean, quote, really everybody pants down, to tell you the truth. Uh, we used to sign long-term contracts. But when you sign uh, long-term contracts, whether it's with Qatar for LNG or Russia for via pipeline, but they put their price in what we call an oil formula, which is very easy to know. Basically, you get the price of the barrel of oil, uh, you 
with 17% and you've got the price in uh, MMBTU. So you have, uh, uh, if, if the price of all $100, it's going to cost you seven, $17 per MBTU. But if you want to compare with the US, the US last year, the price of gas was $2 per MBTU. Now it's five. And I hear the Americans saying, oh my God, $5, it's so expensive. Uh, but so $17, and you know, when the price went down to 50 uh, in the recent years, even those, those contracts were priced at uh, $8 per MBTU. And uh, we had the development of the LNG market. We had the imports coming in from uh, uh, Texas. So all of a sudden, it was $7 and $6 and $4. And, you know, the spot prices started to be below the, the long-term price. And uh, what happens when you're a trader is, uh, you know, the first year, you, <laughs> because the problem is you need to mark to market uh, your contract. So if you bring in gas at $8 and you need to mark it down at 5 the next day because that's the price of the spot, I mean, you just lost $3. And after one year, two years, three years, basically people stop doing long-term contracts. I mean, the Russians were begging for long-term contracts because there's no way you can finance anything without long-term contracts. And uh, the European refused to sign. And that, uh, and so it's not dissimilar with uh, what you've seen in Texas, you know, is what we call the fat tails. You know, everybody got cozy. Uh, there was plenty of gas uh, floating around, but was, uh, I mean, even last year during COVID, uh, the price in, the, in, in Rotterdam was $2 per MTU. I mean, just like, it was like, a, it didn't go negative, but everybody was, uh, was losing money. Uh, except, of course, the consumers. And, of course, then you get a cold winter, then you get the, uh, uh, even when to March, uh, you start having uh, China buying more and more LNG as well. You start having supply problem. And all of a sudden, in May, June, everybody realized that uh, the yearly inventory, which was supposed to be back at 50% because you replenish your inventory during the spring and summer, people are starting to be very late and everybody freaked out. And that's the crisis we are now. And of course, on the top of that, you get geopolitics around uh, Ukraine, uh, the new pipeline, Nord Stream 2, and so on. So um, tonight, the price of gas is at $30 per MBTU. And of course, the Again, the problem is the last molecule of gas is going to basically create the price of the overall electricity market. And so th- th- this, is, this is very difficult to, to, to apprehend because, uh, you know, if you talk social, if you talk populations, either people can be, either the retailers, they can pass through the, the rise of the, the price of gas but all of a sudden, you get people, you know, poor people, their, their eating bill is going to multiply by five during the winter. So, so, so politically, it's very difficult. Or the government has, has put price caps, which you see in most countries. And here's the retailers who get totally destroyed because basically they are, uh, they, they, they are selling their gas at loss. And in the yeah. UK, which was the most liberalized, we had, uh, I don't know, like 14 or 15 uh, UK independent UK retailers who went bust in the past two months. Because they they were just bleeding too much money. Yeah. So Maybe that's that's uh, sorry sorry I'm talking a lot, but that's the that's that's the sad situation we're in right now. Well, it's the one that I think we probably want to make sure we covered. There's a lot we can talk about, but maybe I'll ask one question here, and you touched on it. But but how important would you say the Russian supply is into the dynamics of of all that's happening right now? 
Well, the thing is, the Russians is the only guys who have spare capacity. So you know, the every every, I mean, it's pretty crazy because you know the U.S. have been touting freedom gas under the previous administration for you know for four years, and you know what they sell all their molecules to China right now, literally everything, everything. So uh, there's no U.S. gas around. So you know we have to beg to Qatar to get a few ships and and. And uh, yes, I mean, uh, Russia, uh, it's a real problem. It's yeah. a real, I mean, it's making headlines every day. Today, they, the German refused to approve the, the pipeline. So the price of gas went up 20%, literally in a, in a, few, in a few hours. You know, it's a, look, it's, it's a real problem. And I mean, Putin, uh, your, your next door neighbor is, uh, is Canada. These are nice people. But imagine your next door neighbor being Putin. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to pivot us a little bit. I'd love to talk on this topic the entire time and on this next topic the entire time, but we'll just, we'll just hop around to a few. So I, traditional distribution utilities and most energy providers in North America have been pretty limited in their equity investments and their innovation investments in general. But there in Europe, you have a number of, especially national utilities who have made a number of investments and I'll, I'll call them diversified um, energy super majors now they've just kind of diversified their 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 models do you think that's putting them in a better position long term versus other global suppliers or what's your kind of perspectives on you know transition of grid operators business models oh yeah i think uh you've got a few uh, i mean i mean there are two which are you know jump to everybody's mind which are iberdrola and nl uh from spain and, and from italy and um it all started in a certain way because of uh, the deregulation. They were forced to sell their, their fossil fuel plants 20 years ago. And I can tell you they And their market caps and, plummeted then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they fought until, the, you know, the last, uh, the last lobbyists to try to save their, <laughs> their coal plants. They lost. And now they said, best thing ever happened to us. Mm. So they really invested a, a, a lot uh, in, in, uh, in, in networks and... Uh, yeah, I, I had the, the head of networks of um, NL on, on the podcast uh, two weeks ago. And I mean, it's nothing short of remarkable. I mean, the, the level of digital they've put, you know, quantum computing, uh, uh, they, they, they are the uh, pre-advanced in, uh, in, in batteries, for instance, if you look at uh, um, uh, ESS, which is this, uh, this uh, promising startup um, in California, it's NL who's buying the first batteries from NL, sorry, NL is buying the first batteries from ESS uh, to put them in Spain. So uh, yeah, yeah, they're e- extremely innovative. Yeah, ESS uh, and, is manufacturing a couple miles down the road from my place here. So Well, uh, look, I hope it works because it looks, um, it looks pretty promising. And of course, there'd be a lot of, um, uh, a lot of Theranos and uh, not a lot of Tesla, but uh, yeah, I, I hope ESS is going to work because uh, lithium-ion battery I think beyond a six, eight hours horizon, they're going to really be difficult to scale. So we need, a, for our long duration, we definitely need a, another technology than lithium-ion. Yeah, maybe anyway, it's pull... going to be swallowed by the car industry anyway. Maybe we can pull that thread on flexibility a little further. Certainly, one you know one gigawatt of demand uh, of generation for a sixty gigawatts of need isn't going to be solved by some batteries, even long duration ones, but what sort of solutions do you see, see Europe really needing to add flexibility to the system at scale? 
Well, uh, I, you know, personally, I would like to see much more uh, pump hydro storage because uh, we have uh, the Alps are, are in the middle of Europe. And uh, so that's number one. Uh, but that takes a lot of time. Uh, hydro takes a lot of time. Uh, permitting is, uh, is, uh, I mean, it's ridiculous. I always say uh, red tape uh, is the enemy of, uh, you know, the Green Deal. I mean, the, 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 the time it takes to put uh, any asset on the ground is really disparaging. And here, the, the UK, which are always a bit shambolic in a certain way, have done their whole offshore system in a very intelligent way. And it works pretty well. And this is, the, for me, uh, offshore wind uh, is the great, uh, in the North Sea, it's really the great success. But you needed a lot of conditions we had. Uh, one, one is uh, shallow water. That's number one. Uh, number, two was, uh, and number two was an oil industry was all present. So uh, you see a lot of the, you know, I mean, they all change name. This called Equinor and you know, stuff like that, or Dong, uh, Orsted, but they're all oil company at the beginning. So those people, they really knew how to process uh, every equipment on the sea with what it takes in terms of mooring, in terms of cabling. Uh, I mean, offshore wind is not onshore wind on sea. <laughs> it's, it's a very special animal. And, if, and you need to bring in the, 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 oil, the offshore industry in the system because otherwise it's too complex. One of the topics related, obviously, to flexibility that's really hot in the North America right now is the role of aggregated distributed resources. Do you you have a sense that these things at scale can make the sort of impact that's required? Or what's your kind of perspective of where they fit Uh, in the macro picture? I mean, aggregation, aggregation. Yeah. Stuff. I mean... You need to understand that in Europe, 80% of the renewable energy assets are held by infrastructure funds. Utilities have been pretty late in the game. Now they're trying to catch up. But even if when they do it, they don't have the capital. So they do the development, probably they do the management, they probably the PPA, but they don't keep the assets over a long time period. So any product, uh, product, and I would say any asset you, you shape has to be almost constructed in a, in a way that you can then flip it to infrastructure funds or pension funds. And aggregation, it's a lot of, I mean, it's, it's always a lot of paperwork, you know, for big units, but when you start piling up, I mean, I know some people, they try to do securitization of rooftop, but I see a few of them and the, the, the transaction costs are horrendous. They're very difficult to track, you know, when you have a hundred megawatt, Asset. I mean, you can send your maintenance guy and so on, and when it's like aggregated, like all of the place. Now, what we see, uh, and that's in relation to what you were saying about uh, the distribution, is that um, we're going uh, for for ultra fast charging. Uh, you will need to put batteries, and in fact, you're going to create mini grids around every ultra fast chargers. Because otherwise, the, the you know the cost of you know changing the grid it's just going to be too expensive. So it's not really aggregation, but what we see is the the development of mini grids or micro grids every time you get a McDonald's or a Starbucks or you know a supermarket. Uh, you will need mini grids, 
because let's face it, I mean, you, you charge three Tesla in front of a Walmart, the three Tesla, they're going to consume more power than the whole, uh, <laughs> than the whole supermarket. Yeah, on the, on the microgrid topic, I've always been a bit surprised how slow those have come into the market and certainly surprised on how slow real-time telemetry and other kind of very logical solutions to harden the system towards the edge have come to be. You know, Europe hasn't been spared the impacts of all kinds of high disturbance events. Obviously, you've seen a ton of them in the press and in North America. From a resiliency standpoint, you know, what what are you optimistic about? What do you, what do you think is on the near horizon that, that could could be meaningful? Well, again, the grid is super. The grid is super strong. You know, the grid has been built, you know, year after year. Um, it's kind of strange. I mean, it really started with the French nuclear program where they purposefully or not really overbuilt some nuclear and they had so much excess power that this triggered the first transmission line. I mean, the French were almost building transmission line for free, you know, just to, just to, you know, just to let the power out. And, and this is based on that initial infrastructure in the 80s that we could liberalize the market in the 90s and so on and so forth. So the, 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 the degrees are, are uh, in Europe are extremely re- resilient. So, um, I mean, unless you have a, a big incident, but um, this uh, each local incident, we can, you know, we can cope. Uh, n- not saying there can't be any any blackouts. There was a mini blackout in the UK uh, two years ago, when at the same time, two CCGTs went down and uh, a, a big offshore wind farm was uh, disconnected, but the you know, they managed to put back the system uh, in, in, in a matter of, of hours. We don't foresee, I mean, touching wood, uh, you know, four days of, of blackouts. Hmm. Of course, when I say that, it's going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> well, don't, it's not to be envied. We've had a few of them over here. So uh, maybe we can turn the corner as we get near our end of our time. Obviously, COP was kind of in the backyard over there. I think that coal phase down language, the lack of agreement around international finance, maybe left people a little bit unenthused leaving. Um, I know, no, 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 you it's know, a good cup. Good cup. You good think cup. it was good, and and what good were your cup. takeaways, or, or or what did it accomplish? Ah, oh, very simple. Coal, cars, trees, methane. Coal. Okay, they they kind of uh, watered down, but you know, first time, first time in twenty six <laughs> cups that they named coal in the final communique. Otherwise, I don't know what they were talking, like they were living in a different planet, you know, we need to solve the climate and blah, 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 reduce emission. And you can't even write coal, you know, in a 600-page uh, uh, report. So coal is definitely in the, you know, in the crosshair, uh, which is good. Uh, so it might plateau. Now the question is, you know, go to India, go to China, try to reduce coal. Uh, that's going to be tough, but at least uh, that's the beginning. Uh, I think there's been a, I mean, deforestation, it's really overdue. And that's linked to the Article 6 carbon market that uh, they have signed. So hopefully we'll be able to put money into forestry. Um, uh, the, the Also methane, um, I think people the past year have, you know, all of a sudden they, they started waking up to the problem of methane. But that's also the because of technology, you've got satellite sensors, so... You can't really vent or flare, uh, you know, in a, in a kind of stealth way. So it's, uh, so that's uh, that's very positive as well. And as for cars, 
Yeah, I mean, there was a kind of agreement, but uh, if, you, if, if you add every company's agreement or country's agreement, it's already much stronger than what we saw at COP. So for me, the, I mean, generally speaking, the past two, three years, the, the great... Uh, uh, the, the, the great advances in EVs and the fact that now we're going to sell uh, 6 million this year and probably 10 million and three chasing the lithium, chasing the cobalt, the nickel and so on. But we've got all the giga factories which are opening uh, right, left and center. We've got so many technological improvements around batteries. So this is, this is a, this gives me a lot of hope. Um, and you know, COP, COP. look. COP is not great, but imagine a world without COP. Huh? No COPs, like nobody comes, nobody cares. Uh, so, I mean, COP is uh, not great, but uh, I prefer a world uh, with COPs than a, than a world without COP. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear your enthusiasm on that. And and we could kind of unpack each of those. But, um, you know, it seems that Europe is in kind of the midst, I'll call them of growing pains, label them however you want. Um, for their energy transition. What do you think Europe is learning and what other regions can learn from everything that's unfolding right now in the, in the area, in the region? And, and, and again, you know, I go back to where I started, you know, geography. <laughs> you need to, there's no point doing uh, top-down things. You know, you need to work uh, with the cards which were dealt with you. So, I mean, if I look at the U.S., I mean, there are, there are places which are very sunny, so it requires... I mean, it's definitely requires, you know, putting more solar there. Uh, you have a, your neighbor, like Canada, has a lot of hydro. Uh, I mean, do the same as what we do with uh, Scandinavia. We are, you know, pulling interconnectors a lot with them. Now, of course, it seems we have less problem in Europe putting interconnectors than, uh, than, 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 than you have here. And generally speaking, look, uh, I think the Biden plan... I didn't go into details, but I mean, this is the GDP of Spain that you're putting to fix your infrastructure. So it's pretty massive. And I, I, I am confident that uh, a lot of it will uh, improve the networks, improve the grids, EV charging. So this is really going, uh, I like the direction. I'm hopeful. That's, that's <laughs> the areas we're working on. So I appreciate that. Well, thanks for joining. It was really great to hear all the perspectives from across the pond, as they say. Uh, keep up the great the great discussions there and, and we'll, we'll stay in touch. Okay, thank you, Bruce. Thanks, Ron.